Hello and welcome to Signals from the Hill. My name's Stephen Walsh. Coming up, we'll be talking to Stephen Holland from Page 45 in Nottingham all about that shop's origins and history. But first, here's some information on some other comics podcasts you may enjoy. Oh, we've had an email asking if we wanted to do an advert for the Avery Hill podcast. Oh, that's nice of them. Does that mean we can't swear? Yeah, pretty much. So, no words like or and definitely no I like Avery comics. Yeah, they're nice. We're the Awesome Comics Pod. You can find us at awesomecomics.podbean.com or on iTunes and as the Awesome Comics Podcast and buy a copy of our Awesome Comics Anthology at www.awesomecomicpod.bigcartel.com Oh, that was very professional, wasn't it? I knew that would go all right. Oh, Jesus. In the monthly radio show on comics, Panel Borders, you can hear Alan Moore of Godzilla. Sandy Toxvig. There's something about the cartoon world that, honestly, in these grim times, is rather preferable to flesh and blood sometimes. Chris Riddell. I have a draw in my studio. Um, it's the naughty draw. And many more writers and artists talking about their craft. More info at www.panelborders.wordpress.com. <laughs> Need a podcast all about comics topics, reviews, and just general chit-chat? Then join David Robertson, Fernando Pons, Mike Sadakat, Giuseppe Lambertino, and me, Tom Stewart, at That Comic Smell. You can find us on SoundCloud, YouTube, and iTunes, and on Twitter and Instagram at That Comic Smell. Pull up a chair and join us. With our 2020 title starting to hit the shelves, the next few episodes of the show will see us talking to some of the creators who have books coming out from Avery Hill this year. For the moment, you can head over to averyhillpublishing.com for information on them, and remember they're available to order from all good book and comic shops. And now, let's chat to Stephen. Hello Stephen, thanks for joining us. My absolute pleasure, Steve. Yeah, lovely to speak to you. This is a a bit of a first for me, uh, in that we've never spoke before. Uh, although we have exchanged emails and mm-hmm. in these previous sort of people, me chatting to people from comic shops, uh, I spoke to Andrew at Gosh, who obviously uh, I have met before. I have been to Gosh before. And I spoke to Jared. At okay. And I have met Jared before and I have visited. Okay. Comics before, but you're the first person I've selected for this series who I've never physically met before. And I've never physically visited page 45. Uh, before. Let's hope I can make a convert of you. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, I am more than ready to, you know, th- there's a reason page 45 was on my list of people to speak to, even though I haven't been there, because the reputation absolutely uh, precedes you. Bless you. So I guess the, the, the natural way to start is to, to look at how the whole operation got set up in, in, in Nottingham. Well, I've been in the industry for 30 years. And 26 years ago, along with Mark Simpson, I co-created the independent European-style comic shop, Page 45 Nottingham, because we looked around at the industry in the UK and we found it culpably enthralled to the American corporate superhero. And we we found that an act of of self-sequestration, but also it's very dangerous to rely solely on one genre for a start, when you, I mean, you, you look at a record store and they'll be selling pop, um, rock, uh, rap, jazz, all these different genres, 
but predominantly the UK comic industry enthralled to the US industry was only selling superheroes. Financially, that's a mere scene when you could be digging a gold mine. But also, our favorite comic creators weren't working in that single genre. And we found it very frustrating that the very finest voices in comics weren't even reaching the shelves. And in those days, pre-internet, comic shops were more like a wall between the best creators and their potential readership rather than a conduit. Um, so Mark and I decided this wouldn't do, and um, we put our money where our mouth was. And your model was based more on the sort of Franco-Belgian idea of uh, a wider sort of range of products, essentially. Absolutely. Page 45 stocks autobiography, travel, politics, mental health, crime, uh, fantasy, comedy, everything you'd find in a prose bookshop, only in comic form. And we did that from day one. We opened 26 years ago just when that wealth of material was really starting to burgeon. Not only the diversity, but the quality that came with it. I holidayed in Aix-en-Provence about three years before that. And I stumbled on this gorgeous comic shop there, full of cartonne, uh, these hardcover graphic novels with glorious production values. And it was run by a couple of auctionarians, which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> and I'm getting on a bit myself now, so you know. Um, uh, we, saw, we saw the people inside. Right from the day, because of what we stocked and the way in which we stocked it with um, the corporate stuff, the superheroes, the capes at the backs, so they didn't put off the women with all that testosterone. We've had a 50-50 male-female readership for 26 years. It just made common sense to me that if you want as many people as possible to visit you and spend their money with you, you stock a broader diversity of material to appeal to them. Common sense. That's all we really put into it. Common sense and a little bit of savvy, mer merchandising, marketing. The yeah. idea of having the superheroes at the back right from day one was that superheroes, they kind of like their little ghetto at the back, their little, their little enclave, their little cave. And they'd have to pass through all the other stuff on their way there. So if they then got bored, if they got bored of the superhero comic, they knew there was other stuff for them. Also, we wanted to look like a bookshop. That was absolutely primary importance because we wanted people to come in, browse, and feel comfortable. So we had everything with spines at the front, and we had a book plinth. I think we were the first ever comic shop at the time to have a book plinth, which means that if you go to Woodson's, all the books are laid out, not all of them, a lot of them on shelves around the outside, but in the center, you have these, these tables on which are stacked vertically, uh, their novels and um, their nonfiction. And right in the center, as you enter page 45, you have a book plinth full of books with spines so that people walking in who weren't used to comics would immediately feel comfortable like they were perhaps in a prose bookshop. And they started looking inside and yes, the books had pictures in them, but they felt comfortable and they continued to browse and they bought. And even your sort of design choices in terms of uh, interior design and shelving were sort of influenced mm. in the same sort of way, weren't they? Blackhouse shelving, we stole that from Watson's too. <laughs> it was working. Yeah, I mean, Waterstones was, uh, you know, I, I worked at the Piccadilly branch for a, a few mm. years, a, a few years back. And it was sort of still, it was owned by HMV at the time, but there was still 
enough of that flavour of the the original idea where Waterstones was quite a sort of transformative moment for sort of book retail in the UK, just in terms of the presentation and uh, the way things were arranged and the scale of it as well, of course. Yes, huge. And um, they started getting into graphic novels, quite right too. If the UK comic shops weren't stocking comics properly, then why shouldn't Waterstones getting into it? And I remember warning people that if you don't, you know, if you don't get in on the act now, Waterstones is going to steal the whole bloody play. Well, fortunately, uh, Waterstones have always has remained uh, resolutely short-sighted enough to insist on categorising comics and graphic novels as uh, a subcategory in science fiction and fantasy as opposed to a separate uh, category on its own. So they, there they, you go. They don't have people who know what they're doing when it comes to comics. And that's the advantage no. that any comic retailer has. So you'll get the most inappropriate material wrapped together, dangerously so in some instances. Mark Ellaby, uh, the creator of Ellabisms, and more recently you might know him from Rick and Morty, uh, did a bang up job at his branch of Waterstones, completely turning their graphic novel section around. But again, they were lucky enough to have someone like Mark Ellaby who knew stuff and had a passion for it as well. And of course, the problem is once the Mark Ellaby's of the, the, the branch leave, it can quite quickly fall to someone else who has taken over the science fiction and fantasy section, doesn't care about comics, isn't reordering in the same sort of ways and keeping on top of what they need to get. But as I say, again, that's the sort of the advantage for truly, you know, passionate, independent retailers, whether it's, it's comics or other uh, kinds of books, you know. You, you can't beat a good specialist bookshop of, of any kind. And, and obviously comic shops are my favourite form that they take. Uh, but, you know, th- there is a worry. It's the sort of thing where, as, as you say, with Waterstones, if they did get their act together, it would be all over for everyone, essentially, wouldn't it? You're absolutely right when you, you, you talk about the knowledge and the expertise of the independent retailer. You're not going to get the... So that's how retailers like Page 45... Gosh in London, OK Comics and Lee's and Dave's Comics in Brighton. That's how we compete against Amazon. You don't get the same curation at Amazon, and you're certainly not going to get a big smile and a hello as you come in. And you're not going to get someone like we do um, as soon as you walk and say, if you have any questions, just shout. Now, that's me welcoming you, knowing I'm here for you, but also backing off, not being too pushy. And I found that nine times out of 10, they do have a question, which otherwise they wouldn't have asked. To make that uh, first initial contact is vital. But then also to ask for recommendations, this is still an industry where by and large, there isn't a great deal of information out there, certainly not informed information. The Page 45 website, um, which I'm gonna bang on about tonight, I'm afraid, Steve, is a great resource because up there are reviews that we've written for the past not just 10 years since it's been there but I've been writing them for 20 years so we've got a a huge intellectual resource there and you can search by category if you go into the shopping area or you can use the search engine to search by creator it's creator or title or bits of title it's a very forgiving search engine then you just click, click on the covers and you'll get our reviews. And we never lie. The, the, one of the key things when you're building up this trust between you and each individual is 
A, to listen to them and see what they want. You just don't foist your own tastes on them. If you've got a breadth of knowledge, then you can pick and choose from your own favorites as to what might suit them. That is so important. Also, you never, ever recommend a dud because I'll, I'd say a third of our shop for sales are based on personal recommendation built up over years and years and years or a new person coming in. And you, you build up a level of trust. Once you recommend a, a dud, or you deliberately just try and shift stock just for the sake of it, you break that cycle, that positive cycle of trust. It's a huge honor that people do come into page 45 and ask questions like, what would you recommend for my gram? What would you recommend for my cousin? My little nephew, he's just started reading. Well, and, and if they're just starting, you must never. I, mean, I curate the shop very, very diligently, but I curate the young readers and the young adult section even more diligently. You don't want someone starting in to come across even mediocrity. And there's so much out there right now that you don't need to recommend mediocrity. When we first started 26 years ago, the graphic novel barely existed. Uh, we had all this room and only about 100 graphic novels were keeping in stock. And also I was going to ask, actually, uh, I don't know if you remember, but what were you sort of, what was your core stock at that time? What were the things, obviously, if you're dealing with like 100 titles, you need to do very well with some of those just to sort of mm. keep things ticking over. I just wonder if you remember, what were the early yeah. sort of oh, hits for Patreon? Vividly, we were so lucky when we opened up that Strange Than Paradise by Terry Moore was just starting up. And that was a lot of women's first ever graphic novel. If you've never read Strangers in Paradise, I, I still heartily recommend it. it. No fantasy involved, pure contemporary fiction about two girls, two young ladies, uh, Francine and Kachu, who are living together. Uh, both of whom have their hang-ups, and one of them has quite a serious past. And into their lives comes David with a huge secret of his own. Um, and it, it, Terry Moore is one of these great creators, which have, whatever he's doing, he, he's a great at fusing two genres, comedy and comedy, I guess crime in the, in the case of Strange Paradise, comedy and horror in the case of Rachel Rising. So that with Rachel Rising, the stuff that's really sort of spine chilling and very, very worrying is offset by great comedies. You laugh all the harder. And then when you're laughing, he just hits you over the head with something absolutely vicious. So Strangers in Paradise was starting up. Bone. Bone was starting up. Bone by Jeff Smith, which was a lifesaver in every respect. Everyone loves beautifully crafted fantasy, but also it was all ages. And Jeff had a great experience in animation. Bone came fully formed onto the shelves, beautifully drawn, very, very funny to begin with, with a darker edge and a more epic quality that didn't, didn't hit you over the head to begin with. So it was light and bright and breezy, and gradually he reduced the big backstory. And we were first starting up as the comics were first coming out. Before, as you say, there were too many books. And we had so much space that we managed to devote an entire wall. So I think there were eventually something like 30 comics, keeping them every single one in stock because Jeff just reprinted and reprinted and reprinted. Now we're at the point where there are so many glorious graphic novels that so much has to be wrapped spine on, which is a massive shame because this is a visual medium. And kids in particular don't browse by spine you need to hit them with color, with excitement. So we, we keep as much of that stuff as possible face on. And we're gonna have a refit. Um, 
very shortly in the next couple of years. It's been planned for quite a long time and nearly happened, but practicality has gone away, which will allow far more of our material to be face on. Uh, but yes, in those days, luxury. So Strange in Paradise, Bone, uh, what else was, was, was well, Love and Rockets have been massive for ages. Those are the two I, I, I firmly remember starting out as we started out. And we grew as it grew. I'd be very daunted if I was starting a comic shop now with the wealth of material there. But because we started up when there was a relative paucity, we got to learn as each new book came out and our, our readership along with us. And of course, then you're sort of allocating space within the store. You know, it's interesting, the sort of timeline of your shop, as you say, does uh, have a lot of parallels and mirror to the sort of explosion in the availability of collected editions of contemporary comics. But also, you know, uh, I remember sort of 25 years ago, you, you, you didn't really get, I mean, in terms of European reprints, you know, Tintin and Asterix, but you wouldn't get, you know, things from uh, heavy metal necessarily being collected into English translations that would come over or... Over the years, several publishers tried. Dark Horse tried doing a Mobius library. And it, 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 they all failed because the American market, no matter how huge the American market, just simply wouldn't support that material at the time. Now it does. Um, so humanoids are thriving. The Mobius material is finally coming back into print. We have shelves on shelves of European style material. But there was such a massive resistance in America and so by default, Britain um, at the time. And we craved it. Our customer base craved it even from 25, 26 years ago. But if the, the publishers can't make it work, the books don't stay in print, so we can't have access to them. It's a very, very different world now. But it's just worth bearing in mind that 26 years ago, the periodical dominated and the, the trade paperback was the collected edition was, was virtually unheard of, which is like thinking back to before DVDs and indeed before VHS uh, videotapes. Yeah, it's, it's, this is everything. This world now is everything that Mark and I hoped for and bet our money on 26 years ago. I think now we're very, very lucky. When we first started out, there was, there was very little to get kids into. And uh, we've now got, I'd say, about a fifth of our shop is devoted to young readers, then young adults. And, of course, we've got the Phoenix Comics Weekly, a terrific weekly comic to keep kids reading regularly, uh, a complete breath of fresh air um, of absolute quality stands out a mile against the pap you get in um, supermarket shelves with there, which sells itself on the plastic that comes with it, the plastic yeah. toys. Yeah. Um, all power to Phoenix Comics and then their collected editions. Huge, huge believer in them. One of the great things as well about the Phoenix is, one of the things I really love about it is, as well as all the sort of strips, they have the, the sort of features where it will be how to make comics. So it's really, and like they, you know, they're probably the only sort of like, you know, regular British comic now that has sort of showcases kids' art in a way that, you know, when, when I was younger, we had uh, Tony Hart's gallery. And uh, yeah. it's hard to, and like a lot of like kids' shows would sort of like, you know, present your art uh, for you. But like, yeah, the, the Phoenix really seems to have sort of like grabbed that audience. And, and kids are obsessive about it aren't they it's, it's wonderful yeah. to sort of see the Neil the Cameron, Neil, Neil Cameron's very very good at that as the Etherington brothers 
And it's, it's vitally important to nurture that creativity. Creativity is cool. The can-do ethic is fantastic. The idea of saying, yes, you can do this too. Nurturing that and showing how they can do it is so important. We need new voices. And to get kids, you know, creating early on, using their imagination, hopefully keeping it alive as they, as, as, as they grow as well, vitally important. I know as well as page 45, you're involved with the uh, Lakes Festival, which is another yes. comics event that I haven't uh, made it to yet, but is definitely on the list. And that's another one that seems very much about embracing comics as broadly as possible and getting kids as excited about comics as they can possibly get. Definitely. And there'll be a huge, even though the Lakes International Comic Art Festival isn't happening physically this year, there is going to be a massive online presence. Like F Live is definitely a thing. Um, and there's going to be a, a huge um, family uh, portion of that. I'm, um, I'm contributing to that substantially, but in ways I can't yet reveal. <laughs> I was hoping for an exclusive. No. <laughs> if people keep an eye on the uh, Page 45 Twitter feed, would that be a good place to look for about it as soon as Lycaf authorized me to announce something i will be announcing it at page 45 yes and it is at page 45 unlike the shop which is the numerals for five it's at page 45 the words 45 i did want to reiterate what you said earlier as well about uh the page 45 website being sort of above and beyond what you expect from any shop's website i think you know, obviously all the latest news and information is there. But as you say, you know, an incredible archive of reviews, but then loads of other great little bits and pieces and resources. And as well, uh, you know, incredibly visually engaging websites, well, which you, you'd imagine will be a given for a comic shop, but isn't always guaranteed, as we know. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, well, where do I start? First of all, the visuals. The visuals are created by Nabil Kanan, who I consider one of the three greatest comic book creators out of this country, who sadly most of his stuff isn't in print. Uh, he gave up his career in comics to become a full-time carer for his mother. Uh, and it was humbling to watch. He was such a caring, he is such a caring man. I'm hoping that, that he will start again. But yes, so the visuals by Nabil Kanan, this is a visual medium. And I think it's vitally important that if you're going to have a website representing a visual medium, it become visually appealing. Uh, nothing is a substitute for walking into a European style comic shop and browsing the books themselves. But we've made it the best that we can. So that all the reviews come with interior art that you can click on and blow up. And as you say, there's a huge wealth of resources there. Firstly, it's a fully functional e-commerce website that uh, my current business partner, Jonathan, co-created with Chris Dickin and with some help from Dominique Kidd, an original founding member of Page 45. Um, and in, Jonathan did the most incredible job of working out what he wanted at the end, then planning how to get there, the various stages. And We've already talked about its search function, how you can find various titles. But as you say, there's lots of other resources there, particularly if you're a newcomer. We have our page 45 comic book month. Uh, for the last 10 years, I think I created it. When did we create? Well, yeah, I created it long before Jonathan joined us, so about 15 years ago. 
every month I'd choose a book which I considered the best that month or the most deserving of extra uh, publicity, extra attention. And people sign up to this and they get 20% discount every single month for basically buying what we tell them to. But if you look at that section on our website, you can scroll down the grid and see every choice, almost every choice, a couple of them have gone out of print so that they, they've gone from the website, but almost every choice you've made over the last 15 years, click on those covers and read the reviews. No one's expecting you to read 15 years of that. Um, <laughs> that's 15 times 12. But again, it's a visual medium. So maybe a cover, which is the first thing you'll see, will speak to you. And you click on that, get the review. Click on that, get the review. We've also got a section called Always Recommended. Yeah, a whole wealth of resources out there. And it is, as I say, a fully functional website. So you can buy from all over the world. Buy, we get it straight out to you. You can pre-order as well. One thing I would say about pre-orders, which I'm very keen to promote on Twitter, we've, for example, got Andy Watson, one of my other three favorite comic creators in Britain. He's got a new book coming out called uh, The Book Tour. And he's kindly designed an exclusive page 45 book plate that he'll be signing that we give away for free. Now, pre-orders and that, that, those instances are absolutely vital because if you don't, you might not get the book plate. But readers should rest assured that you're never charged until the book actually comes in and it's ready to ship for you. No matter what you pre-order at page 45, you don't get charged until it's come in and ready to ship for you. The reason the pre-orders are so important is that two and a half months in advance, I have to go through this huge phone book of about a thousand comics and graphic novels and decide what to buy in. And I cannot return a single one of them. So I have to get those, those numbers exactly. The same for every retailer in the country. If you pre-order, that gives me an idea of the level of demand that's likely to be. Now we can reorder as long as things don't get out of print, but it helps us gauge our initial orders, which then helps the creator or the publisher gauge their initial print run. If we find that there's no interest in a certain title, obviously if a creator's got form, I'll order some, but the more pre-orders we get, the more confidence I have in something. And the more confidence a creator has or a publisher has, to up their own print run, pre-orders. Very, very important. Now, I, I understand that if you want to wait for reviews to come out and you're not sure, but if you already do know that creator and you know you want that book, please pre-order while than wait to come out. Because what tends to happen is a book sits there for two and a half months, we're constantly adjusting, if possible, when pre-orders come in, and then suddenly it's published and everyone orders and we haven't got enough. Please pre-order if you know you want something. If you don't, that's understandable. But if you already know that creator, you know you want that book, pre-orders are gold mines, both for us and those creators you love. Great for shops as well, just to be able to work out budgets as well, just like what you can spend on more speculative items as well. So you can sort of expand the range and keep things as interesting as possible. Well, Steve, here we come to the, the present day and the world is changing both within and without the comic industry. And I think you'll find that a lot of comic shops, understandably, are going to be a lot more conservative with the small C over what they feel they can order. Budgets are very tight now. Cash flow, 
has been crippled. So they have less to spend and they have less to gamble. Every time you place these, a retailer places these pre-orders which cannot be returned, it's a gamble. It's a risk. And a name like Andy Watson, of course, we're going to order loads. He's just created a book plate for us as well, an exclusive book plate. You won't be able to get anywhere else in the world. But, you know, we're in a different world now. Um, before the pandemic, Page 45 was very lucky and it had a thriving shop floor and it had a thriving website. But we used to look at the website as icing on a cake. The majority of our sales were shop floor, hand sales, recommendations, bustling, bustling. And on top of that, we'd take 15% extra on the website. I'm very grateful we were too. And I, I used to wonder over the last four, five, six years, how comic shops could actually survive without a fully functional e-commerce website. And then the pandemic hit and we couldn't sell on the shop floor for three months. Fortunately, we had an e-commerce website and people were very, very generous with the orders they placed with us. So I'd come in and I would, I had to learn the mail order from scratch. It's quite culpable of me that I co-owned page 45 and I did not know how our, how our mail order worked. And so I had to learn that very, very fast working alone. And um, it was a learning curve, but I did it. Um, and we kept page 45 thriving. A lot of people who were our shop floor customers then switched to mail order. I'm very grateful we are to that as well. Hugely grateful. These are both people who would come in and buy graphic novels and people who had regular standing orders for the periodical comics. Now we have reopened and the truth is that shop floor sales are the icing on the cake. The vast majority of our sales now are via the website because people are reluctant to come into the city at the moment. People are gradually coming in and we understand their reluctance, but it is slim pickings. I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. If I wasn't an optimist, I wouldn't have co-created page 45 26 years ago when everyone said that the UK couldn't support a European style comic shop. I believed it would. And I was prepared to sink a considerable amount of my own money into doing that. Uh, and it paid off. Brilliant. I'm also a pragmatist and a realist. And, and anyone in any industry right now who isn't studying their own industry very, very carefully, but also the wider world is an idiot. This is a time when it pays to be pensive. I mean, there's a lot to think about right now. We're not through it yet. Larry Marder, the creator of Bean World, the visionary comic Bean World, said something that I took to heart 30 years ago, and that is the first rule of business is stay in business. And thankfully, we've passed the first hurdle. Thanks to our mail order, we survived and relatively speaking, thrived. Most comic shops weren't trading at all. Most bookshops, most independent bookstores were doing local drops and some degree of mail order. But thanks to the website that we built 10 years beforehand, we managed to trade at just under 50%, which is phenomenal. Yeah, remarkable alas, considering the circumstances. Alas, that is surviving, not thriving. Yes. It is, we're very, very grateful for it. 
and we are surviving. We're solid, but it ain't sexy and it's not profit. It's profitable, but it's not, it's, 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 50% is not 100%, as I, you know, and 50% goes to pay the basics, the utilities, uh, your stock, and it's not over yet. I say it's not over yet because sadly, a lot of comic shops, a lot of bookshops, a lot of shops full stop, a lot of businesses full stop, so many businesses in so many areas have suffered terribly during the lockdown and will continue to suffer from reluctance of people understandably either to come in or to spend at all because they know that ahead there are going to be huge job losses we've only just begun and with job losses comes obviously utter tragedy for that those particular individuals involved these individuals with real lives but also for businesses catering for them it's not over that's what i'm saying Historically, how, how much of an impact has the fact that Nottingham's a university town had, had on the shop? Has that been a, a, a big part of the, the business, you think, the student trade? Oh, huge. Absolutely massive. When we first opened, before we opened, I spent a year planning and I produced this huge business plan document for the, for the bank. One of the things that, that I identified very early on is if I was going to create a comic shop in the European style with every genre imaginable, um, catering for what I call the real mainstream, not the mainstream that the superior corporations like to consider themselves to be because they are not mainstream. Their titles are so confusing, the average person on the street just does not even understand them, does not understand how to buy them. Their numbering was ridiculous. Um, we're not even going to go there. So if you're going to cater the real mainstream, you've got to choose where you're going to open very, very carefully. So firstly, to my mind, you choose a city that has a thriving, not just culture, but subculture. And one indication of that is that it has a university. Well, Nottingham has two, Nottingham Trent and um, Nottingham University itself. Not only that, but Nottingham Trent University is very close to the city centre. And here's the other thing about location, and it really is so true, the cliche about location, location, location. And the key is the word between. You have to be between the city centre and what I identified to be key cultural phenomena. So between Brock City, the alternative nightclub, between Nottingham Trent University, between Selector Disc, which was the alternative music shop, between the city centre and the theatre, between Nottingham City. There were so many little, Market Street was absolutely perfect so that people were passing by on the daily routes between the city centre and places that were also involved in culture. Uh, and very early on, the student population was, was vital to us because it's true that as you get older, you tend to become a little bit more conservative with a small C. It's a tendency, it's not an absolute, but it's a tendency to get young people who are already quite keen on studying, on, on discovering stuff was vital and to get people already into alternative cultures like alternative music so if i was going to start up a, a comic shop i'd make damn sure that there was a university there still still i think we're just about to hit our zoom talk limit so oh, I, no. think, <laughs> I think uh the only possible way to wrap up is to ask you having named 
Nabil and Andy, who is the third person that you consider key as a UK comics creator? Uh, they're, they're my favourites. I consider them hugely talented and hugely underrated. And so little of their material is, um, is, 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 is still in print. It's a crime. Andy Watson. Um, we create, our first ever comic month was Andy Watson graphic novel, Little Star, which is all about being a dad. Now, if, if that's not real mainstream, I don't know what is real mainstream, <laughs> all about being a dad. Um, Breakfast Afternoon was another key Andy Watson title about a couple suffering financially during an economic crisis. And again, if that's not pertinent, I don't know what yeah, is. Yeah. Again, out of print. So I champ I'm a natural champion of the underdog. Nabil Kanan brought out a graphic novel called The Birthday Riots, which is, again, all about how you tend to become a little bit more conservative as you grow older. And it's about a mayoral election in London. And he did a, a signed sticker to go in ours. And we sold 100 copies in the first three months. And two years later, I said, so what were your worldwide sales? Because 100 copies in the first few months that early on, just phenomenal. And he said 300. That's the difference that a comic shop like Page 45, Quantifiable, can make to someone's early career. Vitally important book. So, Nabil Kanan, Andy Watson, I'm not going to name the third one. No, no. <laughs> I'm not going to name the third one. Uh, it's Eddie Campbell. Um, I've, I pronounce Eddie Campbell's The Alec Omnibus to be the greatest body of work in comics, and it really is. It's fiction disguised. No, it's autobiography disguised as fiction. It's not about Alec, it's about Eddie Campbell, it's all autobiography. And it was produced at different points in Eddie Campbell's life as individual graphic novels, so it's the strata of someone's life. And Eddie Campbell is comics' greatest raconteur. He is so entertaining in person and on the page. He's also one of comics' greatest philosophers, and I never recommend you read the whole, what is it, 800 pages of the Alec <laughs> Omnibus in one yeah. sitting? Actually, not in one <laughs> sitting, but even, yeah. Take it as strata, strata, strata. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Steve. Best of luck with everything in the future. And it's going to happen. If people are ever in Nottingham, do as I would do and make a beeline for page 45. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Stephen for talking to us. And thank you for listening. See you next month. This show is a whole fast network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.